You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Our Father and our God, we humbly come before you because of the righteousness of Christ Jesus, and it is through him that we pray that you hear us. This morning, O Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, we pray that you meet with us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you send your spirit to enable and comfort Jackson to proclaim the excellencies of your word this morning? Holy, omnipotent spirit, would you help him preach your word in a way that is faithful to your text? in a way that is bold in declaring the gospel, in a way that is clear in its structure, and in a way that is passionate in its presentation. And Holy Spirit, would you open up our ears so that we may hear from you and from your word this morning. For we ask this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Devin. Okay, so I am both excited and terrified uh, to preach today. Um, So today we're going to be in Psalm 34. We're going to be continuing our series in the Psalms. If you guys don't don't have a Bible, uh, we have some in the back. Members of our strike team will be around passing them out. Please feel feel free to raise your hand and get one. And as we look at our Psalm today, Hopefully it's a familiar psalm, and despite, despite all the anxiousness of, of preaching the psalm, as I've studied this, it's encouraged me, and it's challenged me, and I've come to see that, you know, even, even in preaching this to you, that I think I need this, these words more than anybody. So as we open to Psalm 34, the first thing to take note of is that this is a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. Its intention and its purpose is to lift God high, to exalt his character, to praise his name, and to give thanks for his works. The second thing to note about this psalm is that it comes in the form of an acrostic poem. So that means that each each successive verse of the psalm begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. If we were to replicate this in English, the first verse would start with A and then B and then C, and so on to the end. And the next thing to note about our psalm is that it comes with a a title, a superscription. It is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Oh boy. We got some problems. Okay. Maybe that's better. This happened to me multiple times. <laughs> All right, thank you, Devin. Okay, so our psalm today, like some of the other psalms, some don't, but it comes with a title. It is a psalm of David 
when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So in this title, we find not only the author of the psalm, but we find the purpose and the occasion for its writing. And from this title, we know what this psalm refers to. It's, it's, uh, it refers to the events recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21. At this time in King David's life, he's been anointed to be the king of Israel by the prophet Samuel. He's killed Goliath. He's got a growing reputation as a, as a warrior in Israel and as a man of God. But the kingdom still remains in the hand of Saul. And as David's fame and his success grow, King Saul becomes envious of David to the point where he plots to take his life. David is warned of this and he flees and he's on the run. He's alone. He's got no weapons. He's got no food. He's fleeing for his life and in his distress, he goes to the city of Gath. The city of Gath is a Philistine city. It's got a Philistine king. The Philistines were were the enemies of Israel. They were the people that David would fight against. It's the hometown of Goliath, who David killed. And David's situation, he's, he's so hopeless. All of, his, all of his friends have become his enemies, and he goes to this city seeking refuge and, and with the hope that maybe his enemies might become his friends. But as we read in 1 Samuel, David gets there, and his reputation follows him when he arrives. They recognize David, the warrior of Israel, and he's brought before this this king, Abimelech. And David is afraid. He's afraid for his life. He knows that he's probably facing death. And so David does something desperate. He says that he changes, changes his behavior before them, that he pretended to be insane before them. And this strategy worked. It says the king was convinced that surely this is not David, the great warrior of warrior of Israel. This is some madman, and I, and I have enough of those. So he sends David away, and David escapes, and he goes to hide in a cave. So it's a bit strange, and neither, neither the narrative in Samuel nor this psalm seems to give approval or to disapproval of David's behavior. But what's clear in both accounts is that David was desperate in his circumstances, that he cried out to God, and that he sees his deliverance as an act of God, and he responds with praise and adoration of God and thanksgiving to God. So as we read our text, that's a bit of an intro. We'll start in verse 1. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. 
The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That is God's word for us today. So here we have David. He's escaped from King Saul, and now he's been delivered from the hands of this Philistine king. And he pens this psalm of praise and of thanksgiving to God. And as we work through this psalm, we're going to see David's great hope and his trust in God. We're going to see a number of reasons why we should also praise God. And we're going to see many encouragements for the people of God. So as we break up this psalm and we look at it, the big idea, the main points that runs throughout the psalm that we're going to focus on is this. We should praise God as the Savior and Redeemer of those who look to Him, who fear Him, and who suffer for his sake. And underneath that, and corresponding to that, we're going to break, break up the text into three sections and have three subpoints. The first one, that we, we praise God because none who look to him will be ashamed. Secondly, we praise God because he provides for those who fear him. And lastly, we praise God because he delivers the righteous sufferers. So we'll start in point number one. We praise God because none who look to him will be ashamed. For this, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. So now, despite all of David's circumstances, the things that he's been through, all the hardship he's endured, this psalm opens with a remarkable resolution. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. In verses 2 and 3, he invites others to join him in this praise. It says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David wants to praise God for his deliverance and he invites others to join him. Let the humble hear and be glad. Let that be us this morning. And after David gives that invitation to praise, he begins to give the cause for the praise. We look at the account in 1 Samuel. We're told the events as they occur. But as we read the psalm, we get a new perspective. We see how these events unfolded in David's heart and from his own perspective. Verse 4 says that in David's distress that he sought the Lord and that the Lord answered him and delivered him from all of his fears. In verse 6 it says David cried out to God and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. God heard David's cry, God answered David's prayer, and God delivered David from his circumstances. And David does not, does not see this as some sort of isolated incident. This isn't just how God deals with David. It's got a broader application than that. Verses 4 and 6 tell of David's personal testimony of deliverance from God. And verse 5 gives us a broader application. Verse 5 says that those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. It's not just God dealing with with David, but this is God's character, and this is God's heart for his people, for those who look to him and those who seek him. 
It applies to all who genuinely do so. And the promise that is given to such people is that they will never be ashamed. They will never be put to shame. Now, since this is the broader application of the text, this is where I want to focus a bit of our time. I want to talk about what it looks like for us to be ashamed and what does it mean to say that we will never be ashamed. That if we hope and we trust in God, that we will never be ashamed. This word ashamed, the Hebrew word, it's used quite a bit in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's translated ashamed. Sometimes it's translated disappointed. Sometimes it's translated disgraced. You get the idea. It has a bit of a connotation of, of embarrassment or, or humiliation and disappointment. To be ashamed in this sense is to be looking for something, hoping for something, trusting in something, and to have the outcome bring disappointment and disgrace. And we all know what that feels like. We know what it means to be disappointed. We know what it means to be ashamed. I certainly have in my life. I'm sure many of you have as well. I wanted, I wanted to give an illustration to, to help explain this and understand it. Um, and this one, it might be a little, bit, a little bit cheesy, but just stick with me. So when I was in high school, I was, a, I was a, this diehard football fan. I loved NFL football. I had this, this favorite team. I was, a, I was a big Packers fan, right? Come on. No Packers fans here? And since I was a Packers fan and not a Vikings fan, I had reason to hope in the first place. <laughs> so I am a, this giant Packers fan. I've got, I've got you know, you, you, you wait all offseason. You've got all your hope in this team, and, and things are just going to be great. Um, and I remember one year, you know, the Packers, we had a good regular season. We go to the playoffs. We're playing in the NFC Championship game against the Seahawks, if you don't know. That's the game before the Super Bowl, so if we win, we go to the Super Bowl. And I'm this kid, and I love the Packers, and I'm surrounded by all of these annoying Vikings fans. <laughs> and I've got all my hope in this team, and we're about to make the Super Bowl. So in that game, we're up 17-3. to There's a few minutes left. Um, there's about three minutes left in the fourth quarter. And Seattle goes and scores a touchdown. I'm thinking, okay, we're, we're still all right. They kick it onside, they recover it, they go down, they score another touchdown. They go to overtime, they win the coin toss, they go down, they score another touchdown, and they win the game. All my hopes, all my, all my trust in this team, all my expectations are shattered. Now at that time, I was a high schooler, I just got done with the woodworking class, spent all semester, I built this bookshelf, and about 10 seconds after that game was over, it was straight back into a pile of two-by-fours on the floor. <laughs> totally crushed it. I had all these expectations, all these hopes, and I was let down. I was disappointed, and I felt shame and embarrassment. I put my hope in a, in a sports team, and I was ashamed. They let me down, and, and many things in life can do this to us, but the promise in our text today is that for those who look to God, those who hope in God, those who trust in God, the promise is that for them, they will never be ashamed. They will never be put to shame. And that's an encouragement for us. Let us be encouraged by that truth. God promises for his people that he will not, not bring us to shame. That's God's character. And even more than that, in the accomplishment of our salvation, in the work of Jesus Christ, not only does God not put us to shame, but in Jesus, in his work, 
that he took on shame for us. That promise does not come to us because we don't deserve that we don't deserve shame, that we deserve God's blessing, but it comes to us because Christ took that for us. We read in our passage today, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, what? Despising the shame. He endured the cross, despising the shame. The nature of the work of Christ is that he was a, he was a suffering Messiah. We look at what Isaiah says about him in chapter 53 of of the book that bears his name. He writes of the Messiah to come, and he says that he was despised and rejected by men, that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, but we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But it goes on, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. There is no shame that is promised to the, to the Christian, to the one who hopes and trusts in God, because Christ was put to shame for us. Christ took our shame. Now we sit here and we look back on that today. We look back on what God has done to accomplish that salvation for us, but as David writes, he looks forward. David writes, he looks, he looks forward. And he writes with such faith and such confidence in God. He knows the character of God, that God is merciful, that God is gracious, that he forgives sin. And he knows the promises of God, that Messiah would come and that God would vindicate his people and that none who look to him would be put to shame. We praise God for that. Let us be encouraged by that truth. Let us have greater assurance and greater hope in God, greater faith in, in God's promises. Let that help us cling to Christ and to let go of the other things that we put our hope in, that we put our trust in, that have the potential to put us to shame. Let the source of our assurance and our, and our hope not be those things, not be, not be things that can, that can let us down, that, that can bring us to shame, that, that have no certainty, but let our hope, our assurance be found in God and in the promises of God, and in the character of God. So that closes the first point. We're going to go to point number two. We're going to look at verses 9 through 14. It's, it's we praise God because he provides for those who fear him. He provides for those who fear him. So David begins this section in verses 9 through 10. And he encourages, he encourages us to fear God. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Now, in the rest of the section, David is going to build on what that means. He's going to describe for us what it looks like to fear God and what that promise that we will have no lack means. So first of all, for us, what does it look like to fear the Lord? This is a familiar term throughout the Bible. It's used a lot. Many of you have probably heard this phrase before, the wisdom literature, the Psalms, Proverbs, that section of the Bible uses this phrase a lot. We see this idea all over the place. You're probably familiar with, with passages like Proverbs 1-7, Proverbs 9-10. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That if we are to have any wisdom, 
If we were to have any knowledge that it must have its source in a fear of God, in a proper understanding of God, and a reverence for his character. Or maybe you've heard the words of Jesus as he contrasts the fear of God with the fear of man. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So we're called to fear God. We know that in fearing God, there is wisdom. But what does that look like practically in our lives? How does that itself play out? And I think David wants to help answer that question for us. In verse 11, he says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now for David and throughout the rest of the Bible, the fear of the Lord is not just an attitude that we have, but the fear of the Lord actually affects the way we live. It affects our actions. It affects how we speak. Verse 13, again, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking defeat. Put another way, the fear of the Lord involves repentance of sin. It involves the denouncing of sinful action and of sinful speech. To fear God is to align yourself with the character of God. It's to align yourself with the character of God. It's to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. There's another definition in the book of Proverbs that makes this point even clearer. It's from Proverbs 8.13. It says that the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. The fear of the Lord is, is hatred of evil. And it's important that we understand this because in that, in that sentence, there's two things that do not fit together. On the one hand, you have God. On the other hand, you have evil. And these things do not mesh. And yet the society that we live in and, and so often the cultural understanding of, of Christianity that surrounds us wants to take these two things and just and bring them together. They want to say that, that God doesn't really care about sin. That God doesn't command us to, to repent and to believe the gospel. That he, that he accepts us all as we are. That he doesn't want to change anything about us. I want to say that the wages of sin are not death. And that we ought to continue in sin so that grace may abound. But that's not how David sees it. That's not how Paul sees it. That's not how Jesus saw it. That's nowhere in God's word. David says that to fear God is to turn away from evil and it's to do good. It's to, it's to keep your tongue from speaking evil. It involves repentance of sin. And as we continue throughout the Bible, this whole message is there. As we read about the salvation that God brings in the person of Jesus, the salvation that David himself longed to see, we see that God is more gracious than to just leave us in our sin. Jesus came to pay the price that our sins, and he also came to set us free from our bondage to sin. And through him, in Christ, the Apostle Paul says that we who were once slaves of sin have now become slaves of righteousness. And we who were dead in the sins and transgressions in which we walked have now been made alive in Christ. That we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom 
of the beloved son. That's the gospel that Paul preached, and that's the one that David describes for us here. A true fear of God is not to be content in our sin, because God is not content in our sin. To fear God is to live a life of of repentance, a life of turning away from evil, and a life of, of doing good, seeking peace. This is the kind of a fear of the Lord that, that David calls us to, that the Bible calls us to. And with this, David offers an assertion as well. He says in verse 9 that those who fear the Lord have no lack, that even, the, even though the young lions suffer want and hunger, that those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. The Lord provides for those who fear him. So first we looked at what it means to fear God. What does it mean that God provides for those who fear him? Is this some sort of materialism? Is this some sort of prosperity promised? That if I, if I live right, that if I please God, I pray to God that he's going to give me the good things that I want. It doesn't seem very likely. We look at David and his circumstances. He's on the run from Saul. He's alone. He's got no food. He had to go to the, the priests in the city of Nob, and he had to eat the holy bread. He's got nothing. And then he goes to Gath, and they're going to kill him. So he pretends to be insane, and he hides in a cave. It doesn't sound like prosperity, right? And here we have David in this situation, in these circumstances that he's in, and he says that those who fear the Lord have no lack. Those who fear the Lord have no lack. And we look at David's situation, and, and to us, it seems like, oh my goodness, maybe he really was insane. <laughs> or maybe we misunderstand what it means to have no lack, to lack nothing. Maybe the one thing that David does have is greater by itself than all the other things that he doesn't. David knows the character of God and that the, that the promises of God belong to him. He knows that he has God's favor and to have that is to lack nothing. So consider that. And consider David in his circumstances. And consider his, his posture in this psalm. And if you're here today and you, have, and you have Christ and there is nothing that you could lack. David has nothing physically. And yet he boasts of having everything. He's got nothing physically, and yet he boasts of having everything. To David, God is God, and the favor of God, the pleasing of God is that worthy. It means that much to him. And the question for us today and for myself is, do we believe that? Do we believe that to have God and nothing else is to have everything? All of us come here today, and if we're honest... If we're honest with each other, if we're honest with ourselves, we probably got a, pl a prayer list that's a mile long, right? We got prayer lists that are a mile long. We want to have great careers. We want to have great families. We want to find spouses. We want to have kids. We want people to know Jesus. We want people in our families to know Jesus. We have just a list that goes on and on of the things that we want. We want relief from pain in our lives. We don't want to suffer from, from anything. We want to live happy days. 
We don't want the pressures of anxiety or the suffering that comes with being a Christian. We want things from God. We want God to do things for us. And I don't want to encourage you not to pray for those things. Please do pray for those things. But as much as you pray for those things, I pray for all of us that we would pray like David, that even if we didn't have those things, that we would have this heart that David has that cries out and says that those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. That those who have God lack nothing. That if we find ourselves in a situation like David where we we have nothing and we have nobody but God, that we could cry out like David, that I will bless the Lord at all times, that his praise will be continually on my lips, that those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. I pray that we would see the worthiness of God in that way and the character of God in that way and that we would fear God more than we fear men, more than we desire things, that we would desire God himself. That's the kind of fear of the Lord that that David calls us to and he gives us assurance that in this, if we look to God, if we hope in God, if we turn away from evil, we do good. We know that the promises of God belong to us and that God's favor is ours and that he will not put his people to shame. Now we go to our third point. We're going to look at verses 15 through 22. David now gives us another reason to praise God, the last one. And in this section, I think that verse 19 gives a good summary. It says that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Our third point for today is that we praise God because he delivers the righteous sufferers. Now, so far throughout the psalm, David has this category of people in mind as those who look to God, those who fear God. And in this case, he refers to them as the righteous. Not righteous in terms of of sinless perfection, in terms of meriting salvation from God. The Bible teaches that there are none righteous in that sense. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3 actually quotes from the Psalms of David, which says that there are none righteous, not even one. There's a reason that we need Christ. We need the righteousness of Christ. But what David has in mind are people that are righteous in a different sense. It's people that display a pattern of right living. It's a continuation of that same group throughout the psalm. Those who look to God, those who fear God, those who seek him. And further than that, it seems another category is in mind that David is not describing people who are righteous in their relationship to God, but are righteous in, the r- in their relationship to their circumstances. It's in another category. It's situational righteousness. But most of all, David seems to have in mind an emphasis on righteous sufferers and suffering. Those who are suffering not because of, of some sin they've committed, but are suffering unjustly and for the sake of righteousness. And David's, David in his own circumstances reflects this. He's not suffering because he's done harm to Saul. He's not suffering because he meant harm to the city of Gath or to its king. David was obedient to God and he faithfully served underneath Saul. And he's being persecuted not because he wronged Saul, but because God's favor was on David and Saul was jealous. So David in our text today serves as an example to us. 
of a righteous sufferer. And in the psalm, he gives assurance to all who would suffer for the cause of righteousness, that all who would suffer in their endeavors to please God, that they, that though they might lose the favor and the blessing of men, they will have the favor and the blessing of God. Verse 15 says that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. Verse 17 says that when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Though many are the afflictions of the righteous, the Lord delivers him out of them all. It is God's, it is God's character is part of who God is. That those who, who suffer for his sake, that those who suffer in their righteousness, that call out to God, that God hears their cry. And that he delivers them. And in verse 20, we move to verse 20, it says, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. So in this psalm, David is an example for us. He's the righteous sufferer. But in verse 20, we see, as we often do in the Bible, that the life of David points to another. It points to the greater David. It points to the rightful heir of the Davidic throne. It points to the Messiah. It points to Jesus. If we look at verse 20 and if we go and read the Gospel of John, if we read chapter 19, the Apostle John tells us of the crucifixion of Jesus in chapter 19. And he says that right after Jesus has died, right after he has decreed that it is finished, verse 31, it says, since the day of preparation, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But what they, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth. And verse 36, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken that the scripture might be fulfilled. As we read the New Testament, as we read the apostolic witness about the life and the ministry of Jesus, the apostles say over and over again that the Christ, that he suffered in accordance with the scriptures, that he died for our sin in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. And in our psalm today, we find one of those scriptures. In verse 20, the figurative language of David finds a literal fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the only truly righteous sufferer. He suffered the wrath of God for sin, but he was vindicated by God in his resurrection from the dead. Romans 1 says that by his resurrection from the dead, he was declared to be the son of God in power. As David talks about the righteous sufferer and the promises of God to the righteous sufferer, the, the example for that and the fulfillment of that in verse 20 is the person of Jesus. We talked about how he lived a life of suffering, what the prophet Isaiah said about him. 
but he had the favor of God and he was vindicated by God. And now what does that mean for us? We follow this Christ. We follow this Jesus, this suffering Messiah, and we are called to the task of righteousness in the world. We are called to the, the cause of Jesus and his kingdom and his gospel. We are called to serve him. And sometimes that means a cost for us. Just as, as Jesus suffered for the sake of righteousness, so too we might. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. After David calls us to this fear of the Lord, he then assures us that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The same apostle, the Apostle Paul, he writes to the Philippian church, and he says to them that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You should not only believe in him, but you should also suffer for his sake. There's a cost here for us in following Christ. There's a call to righteousness. There's a call to take up the cause of God in the world, to turn away from evil, to do good. And sometimes that comes with the cost of suffering. But that suffering is accompanied for us with, with a promise, with a promise of God. As David says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all. God will deliver the righteous sufferers. Just as God has vindicated his suffering Messiah, he will also vindicate his suffering people, and we praise God for that. And I pray that that truth for us today, that it would encourage us, it would embolden us as we go out into the world, not to go and, and, and seek suffering, not to go and seek persecution, but to seek to do good, to seek to take up the cause of righteousness and to lovingly and respectfully share the hope that we have in Christ. Jesus calls us to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We're to take up his task to make disciples of all nations, to stand against evil, to do good. So I pray that from this text that we would be encouraged by that, but that we would be encouraged that we would seek to fear God, not to fear men, that we would seek the favor of God and not the favor of men, but we would do so lovingly and respectfully. My prayer is that as we reflect on these things throughout the week, that we would find great hope in God's character. And God's character is a savior and redeemer of those who, who look to him, those who fear him, those who suffer for his sake. And just like David, that, that for ourselves, we would have this, this resolution among us that at all times, that we would bless the Lord at, at all times and that his praise would continually be in our mouths. Our, our God is worthy of, of that kind of praise and of that kind of lifestyle. That no matter what hardships, no matter what troubles we may face, that if we have God, then we lack nothing. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And God, thank you for your character. God, you are the savior of your people, of, of those who, who look to you, those who fear you. 
So God, let us receive this word with humility. Let us be encouraged by this word, by this word to, to turn away from, from sin and to go out and to do good. To seek peace, to pursue peace, and to share with others the hope that we have in you. God, we pray that you would strengthen us for that task. That you would give us a greater fear of you and a greater love for you. So God, we thank you and we love you. And Jesus, I pray this in your name. Amen.